read from First Peter. If you've not been here before, um, we um, are going through a New Testament epistle, which is a letter written by the Apostle Peter. And most of you probably know who that is. He was one of the 12 um, disciples or apostles of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament has many letters that were written by the apostles, so Peter, Paul, James, etc. So we're going through uh, one of these letters, 1 Peter, and uh, we've been in it for a, a few months now. There's five chapters in it. We're almost done. We're in the fifth chapter. And basically what we've been looking at in 1 Peter is he's writing a letter to a group of churches, actually, that are going through um, incredible suffering and pain. Um, they were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, um, at much like places all across the world. Um, we, we had a wonderful time that the Dentons led yesterday, um, enjoying something called Secret Church. And much of the focus was to pray um, and fast for the persecuted church. So it was a really um, great reminder of our need to do that. But, but it's not unlike what Peter was doing at the time. He was trying to send encouragement to a church who very likely would lose their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So imagine this, losing your children, your homes, your freedom, whatever it might be, the kind of persecution that they were enduring was intense. And our application for today is how do we deal with our suffering, not even just related to our faith, but just suffering that is common to all man, to all of us. When we lose a child or a husband or a wife, we go through a painful divorce. How do we deal with this as Christians? Um, we called this series Life After Loss, and that's what we're exploring this morning. What's interesting about this passage this morning is it's really focusing in on the nature of the, the local church, um, the role that the local church plays um, in our spiritual life and also in our comfort going through trial. Now, when, when I say church, oftentimes I think people think of buildings with steeples, right, and crosses on the front. We think of a place um, that we meet and gather that no doubt if it's a Christian church, Christians will meet and gather in it. But in Scripture, a church is not a, a meeting place. A church is a local expression of people that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So this same group of people um, right here in this room right now could be meeting in my, my house or in a basement, and it would be just as much a church as it would if it were me meeting in a place with a steeple. Does that make sense? And God brings us um, instruction about what a healthy local gathering of God's people is supposed to look like. A, a, a healthy local gathering, therefore, that is productive for all of us when we're, we're, when we're enduring great trial. You know that when you go um, to any local church, if you're a Christian, um, it can even be, either be functioning in a healthy way or it can be dysfunctional. Right? Did you know that that's true? So not, I'm not under the illusion that all local churches are productive places um, to grow and to heal even from your pain. But our, our desire as a local church is to be healthy, to be a place that is supposed to be the way the New Testament describes it. You all might have heard of the, uh, that saint from centuries ago, Francis of Assisi. Have you heard of him? Now, he's sort of been... Um, been made a myth and kind of legends have surrounded his person. Uh, he's sort of known for like having birds and animals sort of kind of gather around him and follow him, follow him around and he could speak to them and they would speak back, not words, but he just understood their chirping or whatever it was. Have you heard of this before? Like St. Francis, Francis had this sort of power. Um, no doubt this is um, sort of um, made, in, this was sort of made into a legend and a myth. Um, and it comes from, by the way, he saw creation um, as precious and valuable. 
So St. Francis didn't see the earth and the world that we live around us as sort of incidental, um, that's there just to make my life happier. He, he saw himself as a servant to the world, so he cared for creatures and plants and animals in a sort of unique way. He would have been um, a great, um, what do we call him nowadays? What, no, well, yes, okay, thank you, Christina. That's not the word I was looking for. Environmentalist, I think, is what I was looking for. Um, God bless you all with a green thumb. Um, but I think he's right. I think St. Francis and his care for the world and not his neglect for the world um, it w is to be admired. But that's not why I'm talking about St. Francis. St. Fra Francis was also known for his tremendous humility. Um, he existed in a time where um, the church was becoming incredibly rich and incredibly powerful, and that power and that wealth began to seduce the church and its leaders. Um, so Francis was a model at the time of generosity, simplicity, service, and humility. We learn um, there's a story about St. Francis where he's returning from, um, from the woods in prayer, and... <clears throat> As he, as he returns back to, to where he lived, a fellow monk met him and asked him a question. Um, by this time, Francis of Assisi had become very popular in the world, and people were following him and sought his wisdom and counsel. And this monk asked him a question. Why is it that all the world comes after you and desires to see you and to hear you and to obey you? I have the same question about myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you are neither handsome or noble or of great knowledge. Nice, thank you. <laughs> Why then does all the world run after you? Honest question. Francis sort of stops and reflects on this question, and he answers, Why does the world run after me? Hmm. I think it's because the eyes of the Most High God has not seen among sinners one more insufficient, nor a greater sinner than I. And therefore, to do that wonderful work which he intends to do, he elected me to confound the nobility, the grandeur, the strength, and beauty and wisdom of the world, so that all men will know that all virtue and all goodness are of God, and not of his creation. That none should glory in himself, but he who glories should glory in the Lord. Wow. What a, what a profound answer to receive from an incredibly humble man. We have a, a similar story of a, a, a more modern figure, a missionary. His name was Hudson Taylor. Do you all know who that is? I've at least heard his name. He's less popular, I think, but um, if you've been a, an evangelical for any amount of time, you've probably heard the name. He was an evangelical missionary to China, and at the, t at the time, China just was without Christianity in the early 1900s. So he became a missionary to China, and for years and years and years, Hudson Taylor experienced absolutely no fruit in ministry. No one was coming to his church. Other missionaries around the world were not gravitated toward his mission, that no one wanted to help him, right? The Chinese just were rejecting consistently the gospel of Jesus Christ, just fruitless ministry for years. And as a side note, I think we, sh we should just speak something to ourselves in our own lives. 
you might feel that your life is fruitless, but endure and be faithful. Because you don't, you're not always on God's timetable in your mind, right? Amen? So keep praying for, for the people that you love. But then all of a sudden, near the end of his life, it exploded. Lots and lots of people started wanting to become missionaries in China. Um, many, many Chinese people started accepting Jesus Christ. So it was almost like the exact opposite. So in the end of his life, he experienced incredibly fruitful ministry. And one day he was complimented by a friend a little bit more politely than Francis's buddy. Um, And he was asked why God used him for such a great work. And this was Hudson Taylor's reply. It seemed to me that God looked over the whole world to find a man weak enough. And when he couldn't find someone weaker than me, At last he landed on me. He said, he's weak enough. He'll do. Friends, all God's giants, this is what Taylor says, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they counted on his being with them. Weak men have the unique ability to know that they can't pull it off by themselves. They need help. And the truly humble man of God isn't going to seek help from his creature or the creation. They're going to seek him. They're going to know, I'm not him, I'm not God, and I need God. Richard II, in Shakespeare's classic um, work, he said this, The more fair and crystal the sky, the uglier seem the clouds that in it fly. You see, why, why are these men so uniquely humble? It's because I think, in, in, a, in a way, they got a vision of God, the blue sky, and such a great purity, and all his holiness and righteousness. God revealed that himself to them in such a way as they could see him clearly. And in that vision of God, they recognized how lost and base they were, how much they needed him. How much that if they did not have him, they couldn't function, they couldn't survive, they couldn't breathe, they couldn't eat, they couldn't love, they couldn't do anything without his care or assistance. They could not survive without him. These men were humble because of a clear vision of God. Now this morning, as I said, we're opening up to 1 Peter, and we're going to describe, hopefully, what is the healthy local church. And the reason why I introduced the sermon like this is because I want you to know that everything that we're going to talk about this morning depends on humility. If the church is not humble, if the pastors are not humble, if the members are not humble, it doesn't work. It falls apart. It becomes a competition. It becomes a show. It becomes greedy. We use each other to get what we want out of each other. Churches can be very ugly places if we're not humble. You see, humility requires repentance. It requires an honest view of who God is and who we are. See, we'll get into that more in a second. There's a help, though, that we have in the local church when going through crisis as Christians to be built up, to be encouraged, to even have people rejoice with us, our growth in the spiritual life if we are indeed Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, happens in the context of a healthy and humble local gathering of God's people. And that fellowship, like I said, can undermine or assist in bringing your health and healing. 
as a spiritual being. So the healthy local church has a reciprocal relationship. That means that we have a responsibility one to another. It is not commercial. It is not consumer. You see, the healthy local church is committed to each other. We don't just show up and open our mouths and receive food. That's part of it. But we're also giving that food back to each other. There's a role that we play, an active role that we play in each other's lives. You see, if we're always only receiving, then who's giving to the person giving? Do you think that the, that the teachers don't need your love and don't need your investment in prayers and friendship? That they don't need you to speak God's work back to them? You see, that's, that's an illusion. You see, if the, if the local church is not reciprocal, it becomes unhealthy and it starts to wither and die. We're given this word in our text, it's a unique word, entrusted. The local church is entrusted to us. God's people, I should say. All of God's people around us are entrusted to us, not just to me. You see, we might think this, this is just for pastors, but the, the wider context tells us that this is for each person that is a follower of Jesus Christ. That means that I am entrusted to you for your care. You have a responsibility to care for me. Isn't that interesting? I have a responsibility to care for you. And the people in front of you and behind you and on the side of you, we have a responsibility to each other, to care for each other, to know each other, to love each other. You see, there's a reciprocal relationship in the local congregation that if it's not reciprocal, it becomes proud and therefore ineffective. And it is not a place that is healthy or, or beneficial for anyone to receive any amount of spiritual healing or growth in Christ. So we're entrusted to each other in a reciprocal relationship. We have a role, a duty to care for each other's lives, to care for each other's souls. We're entrusted with many things in Scripture. If you look at other places of the Bible, we're entrusted with the gospel, the good news. That's the word of God. To not pervert it, to listen to it and obey it. We're entrusted to prayer. We're entrusted to mission. That's knowing that there are people around us that don't know Jesus Christ, that we need to, we need to go after them with the good news of Jesus Christ. We're entrusted to many things in the Bible. But here, in particular, we're entrusted with each other with fellowship. Some of us, I fear, don't even know each other's names. And we're members of the same church. And I'm not trying to guilt you. I know sometimes we're not intentionally trying to be off-putting or separate or distant. Life is busy. I get it. Oh, but can I encourage you through this word that we received this morning? God has entrusted you with me. And he's entrusted me with you. And he's entrusted us with each other. You see, friends, if you're missing out on that, you're missing out on health in the spiritual life. And might I say also add to that, if we're missing out on that with each other, we are not going to be effective in our community in reaching the loss for Jesus Christ. You see, this is just a movie that we invite people to. Right? Is, is, you know what I mean? It's a show. It's like, it's a, there's a nice show that I go to every Sunday morning. You want to see it with me? 
You see, the church is, is not just consumer. It's not just entertainment. It's reciprocal. It's orderly. <clears throat> we are members of the universal church of Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ. When you put faith in Jesus, you become part of his bride. Right? You are, you, are, you are made up of the body of Christ. There's many different terms in the Bible for it. The people of God. The church. The bride of Christ. When you put faith in Jesus Christ, you become brothers and sisters in Christ spiritually with people in China instantaneously. That's God's universal church. His universal bride. His universal people. When you put faith in Jesus, you become that. But we're not sort of floating around and this kind of vague spiritual body. The Bible tells us to realize that relationship with each other locally in our gathering with each other. You see? So while we're members, it's true, of Christ's universal body, he commands us to have a reciprocal relationship with actual physical people that love and follow Jesus too. So we're committed to a local expression, a local community that's part of a greater global community. Does that make sense? A Christian, by the way, is never bound for life into one local expression of God's people. You see, you could be called by God tomorrow to move to Russia or Barrington, <laughs> right? And if God's calling you, to, for some reason in your heart to fellowship with his people at a different expression in another locality, that's fine. This isn't a cult, right? You don't have to stay here, right, in this church. But I'll say this, when you put faith in Jesus Christ, we are bound to his people no matter where we found, find ourselves in this world, okay? What we find in this passage is a description of a healthy gathering of God's people, and therefore, because it's healthy, it's an instrument of healing and help when we face tragic loss. Peter speaks of a church that is orderly, made up of people that share a common attitude toward, toward each other and Jesus. They are, and that attitude is this. They are watchful, willing, selfless, and gentle. We see this in this passage. Watchful, willing, selfless, and gentle. Okay? So it's orderly. Watchful, willing, selfless, and gentle. Let's go over this. Okay? Before we continue, I need to remind you that for any of this to work, as a foundation, we need to be humble people. Or it all just crumbles apart. Okay? It all depends on an attitude of humility. There cannot be order in the church with lots of proud people. There cannot be a healthy watchfulness for each other if we're a bunch of proud people. Because then we just become Pharisees, right? Nitpicking every little thing. Why was so-and-so late to church? I wasn't late. <laughs> right? <laughs> By the way, you know, you know when you're late to church? When we're, when we're all getting in our cars going home. <laughs> then you're late, right? Things happen. We, you know, oops, the alarm didn't come off. Or my kid just, you know, took off his pants. Before, right before, as we're getting into the car because they got to pee, like little ones, I mean. <laughs> it's okay. No one's judging you if you come in late. Well, they shouldn't be at least. Okay. <clears throat> 
we need to be humble people if we're going to be watchful people, if we're going to be willing, selfless, and gentle. And let, so let's get into this. Orderly. The Bible instructs us to have order as a local church. Um, without humility, let me just say this, and some of you might know that this is true. If there is no humility, order can become a form of tyranny. Right? In other words, what is order? Order sometimes means government. Who is responsible to do what? Is there, are there certain kind of like a th the, the pastoral authority? They have certain authority in Scripture. So there's this order that the Bible gives us. But without humility, order can become tyranny. You've got to listen to me. I'm in charge. How many people have, go to work like that? Right? Your work has order, but if it's filled with arrogant people, then that order actually provides a system for you that is dysfunctional and unhealthy. Isn't it? Right? The problem not is that it has order. The problem is the attitude of the people that are making up the order. Does that make sense? Order in the Christian life, as we see in the Bible, means that we're integrated with and, account and accountable to each other, the local expression of God's people and, by the way, her pastors. In Scripture, the Bible assumes that Christians meet locally and are accountable to each other. All over the Bible, it's just assumed that Christians integrate themselves into a local church. We see this and just implied by the many letters to churches, the Church of Ephesus, the Church of Philippi, Thyatira, all these local expressions, each locality having a system of order, elders and pastors and deacons and whatnot. You see, they're all orderly, and, they, and, it's, and that order is based on humility. <clears throat> uh, Peter, uh, excuse me, so as part of that accountability, the congregation in our text is gifted by God with shepherds or pastors, elders. In our passage, young men are supposed to submit to the authority of the older men. An older man in scripture, it seems like it's talking about age, it's, it's talking about an office. God calls shepherds to a local church to watch over and care for them, and we'll get to that more in a second. But P So Peter goes on to say, that, that these elders have a certain function, a certain authority. But he also says that there's a certain authority in the congregation that's to be respected. Okay? Right off the bat, you might, you might have a problem with this. First of all, because let's just, let's just say it out loud. We're Americans, and we don't like bosses. You know, authority. We, we want to we rebel, right? The, 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 our, our, our coming into existence was based on fighting a king, right? Some kind of authority that was abusing his power. So we have it in us to question the man, right? It's just in, a, it's in our, our DNA as Americans. So right off the bat, we don't like these words like submit or authority. Or these things sort of offend us, offend our sensibilities as, as Americans, but here it is in Scripture. We might also just kind of think, too, that wouldn't this potentially... Um, provide a danger for the local church. If pastors and elders are given a certain authority, couldn't they abuse it? Couldn't they um, like manipulate the people to get them to kind of follow them blindly? Isn't that possible? Yes, it is. Good observation. They're called cults, right? Um, many Christian churches, I shouldn't say many, but oftentimes that's, that you find that in churches, and it needs to be resisted. Um, that's why Peter, by the way, um, in other places in the Bible, describe the limits of pastoral authority. We can't tell you, even in this passage itself, it describes the limits of pastoral authority. Um, other places in the New Testament even tell the church, you're going to like this one, ready? Even tell the church 
how they can honor God and get rid of a sinning pastor. Right? So that means that you have the authority, the local church has the authority to get rid of me if I, if I start getting wacko. Right? I'm not the boss. I'm not the, the president. Well, I guess I am uh, because we have bylaws. But, but like I have limitations in my authority, right? The Bible gives us in our bylaws, that's, that's the governing documents of our church, you're able, the reason that you're able to do this is because I think it's biblical. So our bylaws gives the congregation the ability to add or to remove a pastor as they see fit. And I think that, that the, the reason that's in there is because I don't think I'm your boss. This is not my company that I own, that I started. This is the church of Jesus Christ that he started with his blood. And if I get weird, there is no ownership that I have of this place. Jesus Christ owns the church. I'm an under-shepherd. He's the shepherd. It doesn't matter what person started some local expression of the church. It's Jesus' church. And you have a responsibility to me, and I have a responsibility to you to love and to follow and look like Jesus Christ. Amen? The relational order in a church is only healthy, therefore, if it's characterized by mutual humility and respect. <clears throat> did, you know, did you know that pastors can be bullies? Did you know that? All right, okay. Don't, don't think of me in your head. All right, let's, let's refrain from trying to, like, yeah, I, I knew a jerk once. Right? Let's, let's, let's try not to do that. But did you know that congregants, members of a church, can be bullies too? Right? There's enough bully potential to go around. Isn't that true? An obstinate church member is always going to spurn and reject any supposed pastoral authority, oversight, or even just simple concern. They're going to resist it. They give their pastors... Simply a decorative function. He preaches pretty good. This one can even play the guitar. That's, that's awesome, right? But the, the moment we start really kind of watching out for each other, right, I'll have none of that. This isn't the church for me. We just want to be talked to from the pulpit on Sunday, right? You see, that can happen. Church, we can become like that as church members. But an obstinate pastor, oh, the danger here. It leaves the church vulnerable to his whims, to his manipulation. You owe me, right? There's a double honor, right? It's in the Bible. You've got to double honor me. Get, you know, pay me more. The Bible says to. Right? We can start manipulating God's people rather than seeing ourselves as humble servants. You know what Paul did? Because he was in a church that money was an issue. They had these hang-ups and insecurities about money. So you know what he did? He said, don't give me anything. I'll make tents because I don't want this to be a wall, an obstacle between me and God's church. You see, they needed to grow up. The Bible says that the worker is worthy of his wages. They needed to learn and to grow and to become healthy. But he wasn't going to break the tree, so to speak. He was going to take that bent tree and slowly bring it back to health. He wasn't going to enforce his liberties and freedoms and what he deserved, what he thought he deserved. You see, he respected the fact that these people needed someone gentle. We'll get to that in a moment. Okay? The dance of a healthy relationship in a church 
requires humble people. You cannot be led if you're not humble, and you cannot lead if you're not humble. You cannot be led if you're not humble because you won't listen to anybody but yourself. You cannot lead if you're not humble because you'll end up being a tyrant and very difficult and cranky to, to add, right? So it requires a humility. This order requires a humility. Now, I know that not every church is like this, but, but even though every church is not like this, the spiritual life cannot exist in a healthy way outside of this. That means something very simple, that the engine of spiritual growth God has given us is the healthy local church. The spiritual life cannot exist outside of a reciprocal relationship of humility. But what else does it do in this order? What is our gathering supposed to look like? Well, it's supposed to be watchful. Watchful. I don't like that. The watchtower. What's happening? Who's watching what? Right? Um, I've heard that word before. Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it. Elders... Pastors in the local church are given the unique responsibility to create a watchful community. And by the way, they're not the only ones that are supposed to be watchful. We learn from other places in the scripture that each member of the church is to to be caring for and watching for each other. So this is not just uh, the pastor's responsibility. The, The pastors do, however, have the unique task of leading the way, creating a safe context for it to happen, in a healthy context for it to happen. That's the pastor's unique responsibility in the local church. But what does Peter mean? Watch what? What are we watching for? Certainly not, we're not supposed to be judgmental. We're not supposed to be busybodies. We learn later that we're not supposed to be lording ourselves over each other. So what does it mean to be watchful? And I want to give you an example of the Apostle John. Do you guys know who the Apostle John is? So he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples follow Jesus. Did you know that, that John lived up into his 90s? He's the only apostle that was not martyred for the faith. Every other po- apostle was murdered um, by b- basically the Roman Empire um, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. John somehow dodged a bullet with this. Okay, He ended up living into his 90s and serving Jesus unto his death. Um, there's a story about John. There's this wonderful little book, if you like this sort of thing, called Ecclesiastical History. And it's by this guy named Eusebius. And this is all about the apostles' lives after Acts. Okay, so Acts, the, in, in the book of Acts, it tells you all about the apostles and what they did after the death of Jesus. Well, Acts ends, right? And, the, and all the apostles were still pretty young at the end of Acts, so we don't really know much about them after that. Well, Eusebius write, wrote a history in the year 300, Right, so this is very old. This is a very old history book. So Eusebius, in the year 300, writes a history of the apostles, and he, and he writes an account of the apostle John at the age of 90. This guy is 90. He gets released from prison. He goes back to Asia Minor and starts investing in the local church, visiting local churches. One of these um, local churches he visits, did I say he was in his 90s yet? Very, very, very... Um, um, elderly man. Well, he's um, leaving, about to leave a region um, where he was visiting a local church, and there was a young man 
um, maybe about my age or younger, that had recently come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he entrusts that man to that local church. He says, care for him, teach him about Christianity, baptize him, right? So he entrusts this young man to this local church to care for him. And they did for a season. They taught him, they baptized him, etc. But the church and the pastors started to neglect him, forget him. And eventually, another group got to him. A band of robbers got to him. Literally, thieves somehow were introduced to him, and he left the church to join this thieving mob. And apparently the church was just sort of apathetic. They forgot about him, and they just let him go. Well, here's what happens. John comes back to visit the church again, a little older than 90 now, right? And he says this. These are his exact words from Eusebius. Return the deposit which I entrusted to you. Shepherds, watch over the sheep which I entrust to you. Where is the deposit? Return it. The deposit that I entrusted to you. Where's the young man? He comes back. He's interested to know how he's doing. And so these ba- this group of pastors, oh, okay. They start kicking the dirt, right? Uh-oh. Um, and this is what they say. He's dead. He is dead to God. And they proceed to tell him what happened. This 90-year-old man look, <laughs> looks these guys in the face. The pastor square in the face, and he says this. I left a fine keeper of a brother's soul. Oh, imagine if John were here, and he looked at this church, and he looked at me. Would he say the same? I left a fine keeper of a brother's soul. So this is what John does, okay? He's not content to just diss the pastor, Okay, he says this, and I'm not lying, get me a horse. So they bring him a horse. He gets on this horse somehow, maybe lift, having himself lifted up with help. He gets on this horse and he says, lead me to him. Now keep in mind, this guy is a bad guy now. He's a thief and likely a murderer. He says, take me to him. And the Apostle John, in his old age, not considering his own health or well-being, proceeds to track him down. This was the man that was in prison at 90 years old and had the book of Revelation revealed to him. This is the man, a man, by the way, who was literally boiled alive in oil and lived. He's 90 now. You know, if we're 90, what are we doing? You know, Golden Girls, right? Um, Another episode of Jeopardy. That's what I want to do. But this guy, to the day he died, is watchful. He cares about the spiritual life of God's people. And he gets gets his 90-year-old butt on a horse, and he says, take me to him. And John approaches 
this young man, and the young man from a distance, I almost kind of picture it like the prodigal son, the young man from a distance sees him coming, and he realizes it's John. Now, this is the guy, right, that likely reclined on the breast of Jesus days before he was crucified. He sees John approaching. So you know what this thief does? He's the captain, by the way, of this brigade. He starts to run in the other direction. He's filled with shame and guilt. What have I done? How could I have done this? And he sees John approaching, and he starts to run. And don't you do that too, friends? When you realize you've been far from God, and all of a sudden God starts showing up in your life, and you wonder, is he going to smush me or is he going to love me? And we don't want to take the gamble, so we start to run even more. So he starts to run. And this is what Eusebius says. Imagine this. Just kind of picture a frail, elderly, 90-year-old man. He gets off his horse, and, the, and Eusebius says, the, the apostle pursued him with all his might, forgetful of his age, and began to cry out. Have you ever been chased by a 90-year-old? <laughs> I can't imagine that this might be slightly horrifying and amusing at the same time. A 90-year-old is running after me. Now, I'm sorry, I'm not in that good a shape, but I could outrun a 90-year-old, I think. But this guy starts running, and John starts running after him, and he starts to cry out, and this is what he says, according to Eusebius. Do not fear. There is still hope for you. I will pray for you. I will suffer death for you. I will live for you. I'll give my life for you. Stay. And in his crying out to this young man, the young man keels over in repentance and begins to weep. And he's restored to Christ. You see, friends, I don't know if this is the only thing or the, the only, I don't know if this is all it means to be watchful, but good grief, watch the flock, care for it, run after it, give your life for it. I am supposed, in particular, in this passage, Peter's talking to pastors. He's talking to guys like me. He's telling me to care about you that much. And I, I just have a confession to make. I, I, I don't know that 50% of the time I think about you all that much. And I'm not trying to make you laugh or, or incite your pity. I'm trying to just be honest. And this challenges me to be watchful to care about you. Because these are issues of life and death, heaven and hell. Your soul is on the line. Do you believe that about each other? Do you believe that one day each member of this church is going to stand before Jesus Christ? That you're going to stand before Jesus Christ? I don't even run after myself like this. Oh, can we watch even after our own soul and not neglect it? And not walk away and drift away, but to live each day in watchfulness so that we can care and love Jesus Christ like this. That's the kind of church that God has called us to, the kind of Christian life he's called us to be.
Watch over each other, he says. What are you watching for this morning? What is it really? Really, what do you watch for? Love, relationship? Are you concerned about your own ego or identity or power or name? Or do you watch for Jesus Christ daily? The maker of your soul, the creator of your life. He made you. And you know how you know he's real? This is a very simple thing. That there is a creator that desires a relationship with you because he rose from the dead. He proved it to us when he conquered the grave. If Jesus is in the grave, then this is all a monumental waste of time. But if he is alive, then that changes everything. How do you know he's alive? Well, that's a different question, and it's a good one. The Bible gives great evidence, and not only just the Bible, but external evidence that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. You see, be watchful. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Be watchful. Well, our watchfulness and our orderliness also needs to be willing. You see, before I get to that, let me just say one more thing about watchfulness. Only humble people can really watch well. Because if you're arrogant, you become a Pharisee. Everyone else is just not as morally superior as you are. Every little thing you're nitpicking, right? That's, what, that's, that's how proud people watch. But humble people don't watch like that. Humble people recognize that they're, they're just as fallen and just as much need for God's help and forgiveness as you are. You see, that's how they pursue you. Not with a heavy hammer, not, a, not with a big arm, but with gentleness. You see, but they also need to be willing. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. You see, we can think about any part of the Christian life like this. Do it willingly, not grudgingly. Oh, I got to go to church this morning. I don't want to, but I'll do it anyway because Jesus died and rose again. Right? So I got to go. And if, it, and if I don't go, and it's like three weeks in a row now, Kyle's going to call me. Right? And why is he watching out for me so much? I actually don't like that he's calling me. Right? Like that, isn't that, right? Don't, but the Bible says, isn't that how, how we can be sometimes? Like, we just, we just do it grudgingly. I'll do it, but I don't want to. I do the dishes grudgingly. Right? I'll just confess that to you right now. You guys can pray for me. I, th- there's one thing, one chore in the world that I despise most is dishes. I just don't like, I like laundry, that's fine. Mowing the lawn, that's fine. But the dishes, No. Someone else. I do the dishes grudgingly. Sometimes we look at the spiritual life like that. It just becomes this chore. Looking out for people is annoying. And not only is it just an uncomfortable chore, but it becomes this thing where, like, you know, also they might give me attitude. They might not like me anymore if I even suggest that, they, that, like, that I'm concerned for them in a direction that you know, they're just going to get mad at me and I want to deal with that, so I'm just going to shut up. Right? This is the process that we go through. But the Bible says we, deal, we, we, are, we are supposed to do this willfully, willingly, eagerly. How? If you're not eager, how do you become eager? If this does not sound fun to you, if this is not something that you want to do, how do you, want, how do you start to want to do it? Well, the only way that I know is this way. Pray. The only way that I know how to become eager is that I have to look at Jesus' face every day. If I am not in his beauty, if I don't know him, if I don't receive his love, 
from his word and from being in prayer, if I'm outside of him, then everything that's associated with him is going to be an annoying chore to me. You see, when, but when I'm in the full presence of Jesus Christ, it's not a chore, it's a delight. Even when it's yucky and messy, it's easier, it's a lighter load. Because I can see through it, past it to Jesus Christ. You see, we need to become willing by our proximity to Christ. And if we are not close to Christ, we'll never be willing. You see, but I'm not willing to be close to Christ. Okay, now you're getting philosophical with me. <laughs> right? Like, I get it. I understand that sometimes we wonder, is this going to work? I don't really want to. Show up, friend. Show up and you'll see, you'll see Jesus Christ start to transform your heart. You'll watch him fill, him, watch him fill you with his love. And God's people are no longer, watching out for God's people is no longer a chore, but you're eager to do it. You know what, um, you know what Peter did? The same guy right in this letter? He's saying, elders, be eager to watch out for God's people. Do you remember what Peter did? You know, like we all like to rehearse other people's sins, right? So we're, let's do that with Peter. Do you, remember what, do you remember what Peter did? Denied Christ three times that he even knew him. He was a coward. He, he wussed out big time. Jesus is being crucified, and this little girl says, hey, I think I know you. Aren't you with him? No, 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 no. That wasn't me. Someone else. He must just look like me, right? Another good-looking guy in Galilee, apparently, right? So he denies him three times. Jesus Christ raises from the dead, then meets Peter. And what does he tell Peter? He says, feed my sheep. Right? Care for my flock. Watch out for it. But what does, he, what does he ask him first? Do you love me? If you don't love Jesus, you won't watch out for each other. You see, how, how do you become part of a healthy church that cares about each other, that's involved with each other's life? Nurture a love relationship with Jesus Christ, and it will just be on you like clothes. It will happen. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. I love you. Feed my sheep. Watch out for them. So a healthy local church is humbly and willfully watchful over each other. But we're also selfless. Not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Not for what you will get out of it. Some translations read, not for dishonest gain. <clears throat> you know that sometimes pastors become pastors um, because they, they want attention. They want to prove themselves. They want to, make, they want to feel like they pulled something off that someone else didn't. Right? I'm, I'm using you if that's why I'm doing this. This is about me. Or maybe they just want financial security. That's what he's challenging here. But he's saying don't do it for financial security. Do it because you're eager to serve God. And not, don't just do it selflessly. Don't think about yourself in this. Serve the other person. Do it for the other person. But do it gently. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them in your gentle example. That means that a healthy local church that's going, going to be a place where people can heal in suffering and even grow in Christ isn't a place that they're getting browbeaten and judged. It doesn't mean that we don't look after each other 
and warn each other if we're headed towards a cliff, but we're doing it in such a way that demonstrates a gentle love and concern. You see? We don't lord anything over anyone because we are not the Lord. (laughs) Humble people know this and are able to deal with gentleness and patience, the weaknesses, limitations, and even immaturities of those people that are around them. We can do that when we see Christ's face. Amen? Imagine a, let me close with this, imagine a community like this, where, where the leaders are there not for themselves, they are not proud, not for what they can get out of it, but because they are concerned for the other person. Imagine a congregation, likewise, that can receive from that, that is also treating other people in this fashion, watchful but not domineering, willing and not grumpy, selfless and not using each other, gentle and not a bully. That's the vision of Christ's kingdom. That's the vision of Christ's church. And I hope that we can be one. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray, Lord, if there are people here this morning that don't know you, that this message wasn't lost on them. And I just want to speak uniquely to people right now that maybe are just seeking and they don't know Jesus Christ. What does this have to do with you? You think, like, well, this is, it seemed more about like church people and how they kind of organize themselves and how they should treat each other. It doesn't really seem to apply to me or even be helpful to me but friends is that really true if you're confused by by this message are you really confused by this don't don't god um i pray lord right now that we would all realize that even if people here don't know jesus that deep in their guts that they would know that this community is the kind of community that they've been looking for their whole lives it's a kind of loving union that they need, that they're after. And it's not found at a workplace or at a bar or even in a family. It's found in Jesus Christ and God's redeemed people. He made you so that you would be grafted into his people, his kingdom, and love you forever and ever. Would you trust in him? He died for sinners like us, rose again from the dead in our place. He made you for relationship with him. He's not just an idea or a concept or a logical conclusion. He is a person that loves you and wants you. Trust in him and be saved. He'll deliver you. He'll forgive you. He'll graft you in. He is the greatest example of humility, God. Jesus Christ who lowered himself and became a man. He was watchful, the good shepherd, who left the 99 for the one. He was willing and not grumpy and cranky. And he was all of this if he wasn't selfless. God, we thank you for this. We thank you, God. Transform my life, God. I pray, Lord, that I would be this kind of Christian. And that you would forgive me, God, for my fears and my selfishness and my arrogance. And God, I pray, Lord, that our church would exemplify these virtues, not to earn your favor, but because they have it already. How we love you, in Jesus' name, amen.